Elizabeth Warren just sucks. Oh, yeah. sorry, we're back. Okay, oh. no, we were just talking about Warren. Like, where's she at on this $602,000 relief bill debate? But you know it's Amy Brobachar over here, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we are a we are Amy Bros um, podcast. The Brobachars. Tune in every Tuesday. Man, I feel like we really should uh, rename this podcast. Uh, Decatur was calling it the Club Mentum. <laughs> Amy Amy Klobuchar. <clears throat> no more fun. So anyway, uh, the <laughs> it's like a really rough transition. It, it, it I, is. I, I am actually turning into something serious now. Steve, let's just put another beat. Okay, go on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, look, we can only laugh uh, out of the sheer terror of what's going on in our society right now. I was musing on this the other day. I was playing the game Cyberpunk 2077. It's pretty cool. Um, It's got a lot of glitches, whatever, if you're into video games. But it's cool. I I love uh, sci-fi. I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. And I love dystopian uh, futuristic dystopian stories like so those are merged in cyberpunk 2077 i think it's really great the idea of the game is that you're in this like corporate run society where everyone's like you know modified their body with technology it's in the future it's totally like the almost like an anarchist corporate society there is some government but it's totally run by the corporations it sounds a lot like our society so what i was thinking about is like how different like would our society have to be to start calling it a dystopia because so much of what is in this video game is like parallel in our in our current society like we do see the rich really do control like what the police prioritize and that's a big part of the the game and a lot of these dystopian movies and novels mass incarceration we have widespread unemployment and our government is totally unaccountable for all these issues and we have no like meaningful democratic input into how society is run and like at and, point- and meanwhile too the technological advances for the rich are on another plateau of amazing where that doesn't trickle down to everyone so exactly and it's like we we're they're continuing to gain wealth during this crisis and everyone's heard about that if you're online at all you know people are pointing this out like you know guys like jeff bezos their wealth has only increased during the pandemic and 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 this is just like a, a massive humanitarian crisis that we're going through right now on so many levels on a on a uh, uh, health level on a mental health level on an employment level economic level uh, and what we're going to talk about in this episode is a housing level like just to give you a real picture of how bad it is some of you might be listening and might be uh, renters right now personally struggling to make your rent um, struggling or if you are like a individual homeowner trying to make your mortgage and um, it just uh, we're going to focus more on renters in this episode but a lot of these issues are also by people who like you're not a landlord, but you just own your own house. There's a very big economic barrier to owning a house in the first place. But, you know, we'll get into that. The, what's so bad about the situation is that just between by the end of March and beginning of April, you know, when all this like shut economic shutdown just started, um, nearly half of renters were already reporting that they were having trouble paying their rents or utilities. They were food insecure or they couldn't afford needed medical care. Um, And this is all according to the Urban Institute, uh, an article by CNBC. 
So and sorry, I mean, just, just before you go even deeper on that, Steve, I, I just want to point out too, just so like we can keep this on, on a very like human level. Food insecure is a wild thing for a lot of these people going through this because that is something they've never felt before. We already know the data is out there that people live paycheck to paycheck, that half the money they earn monthly goes to rent. We already know those type of facts. So that other half presumably is already going to groceries if you if you have a family like you you have to feed a whole family on that i'm sorry go on no that was a really good point and like when we i think what that's a really great way to kind of kick off this episode too because what we talk about when we're talking about like economics in general right economics is one way of looking at it is just like how do we make society have enough wealth and then how do we distribute that wealth to everybody? And like, what do we do to make sure that people have the shit they need to, to what? And so there's your basic survival needs, right? And housing and food are like the basics that you need to enjoy any other part of life. You need shelter, you need food, right? Like these are human needs. This isn't like something that should be treated like a commodity, like, you know, like an iPhone or, I mean, that's even a bad example because these days you need an iPhone to function in society and not just an iPhone, any kind of phone. I don't work for Apple, I promise. But, um, you know, any, any kind of, <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, so like we're talking about just like basic human needs here that if you don't have confidence that, you know, in a week you're going to be able to eat or in a week, you're going to be able to have shelter over your head. Like all this other stuff about like, Oh, what do I want to do with my life? How do I fulfill myself? You know, spiritually, how do I fulfill myself artistically and just feel like a happy person is like, your brain isn't even there. You're just on like, how do I right. fucking survive? And, and there's right. so much research and, and discussion and anyone who's lived through it personally can tell you from personal experience, just like the effect that has on your, on your mental health and on your physical health, just being able to, you know, have these basic needs met. It makes all these other things that we want to achieve through, you know, better economic policy, uh, just totally secondary. Like we just need to get people in a fucking shelter, you know? And so that's where we want to kick off. So for half of people to say, and this is between ages between 18 and 64, for half of people to say at the beginning of the economic shutdown for the pandemic that, um, and the social distancing, to already be saying we're struggling to pay our rent or, and we're food insecure and we can't afford medical care. Uh, that's, that's fucking wild. And so that, that, that was early on more than seven months after the pandemic, we're talking about uh, the, the, the shutdown, we're talking about tens of millions of Amer uh, Americans are applying for unemployment. One in four renters that have children, 25% were already behind on their rent as of September. Literally, if it wasn't for a moratorium, they would be evicted, right? And then there's um, one in six adult renters generally, um, whether which, or not they Which, too, and obviously we'll get into all these, you know, things going on right now that, that people on the ground and activists are trying, trying to get. Grant, there was a federal moratorium, and that obviously didn't cover everyone. The federal moratorium, we were later than most countries. Most countries off the bat said, okay, obviously people aren't getting evicted. I mean, most people, most countries were like, you're not even losing your job. They had back plans. But we waited until people were backed up on rent. You know, we are a, a pro-landlord country. And whether or not you 
are a landlord or a tenant, the fact remains is that these, these tenants are getting backed up. They're not canceling any rent. They're falling behind. Like, like Steve just said, you know, one in four are going to fall behind on payments. That's not ending right now just because a moratorium set. Right. This is going to be something we're not even going to see the full effect of the numbers for possibly like two years at least because people yeah. are going to be continually backed up and working on back deals with their own landlords. Yeah, it's, it, the numbers are starting to roll in already. Um, and, and w- there's, yeah, I was telling uh, my wife, like we were talking about like, God, can't wait till this vaccine comes around and we can like put this chapter of our lives behind us. But you know, the, the reality is it's not, we're not out of the woods at all. Like this economic impact on low income families in particular is, is, is going to hit real hard in 2021. Um, unless they keep extending moratoriums and do more long-term solutions. So these like moratoriums are just like in some way, if you want to be cynical about it, like a little pat on the back that politicians can give themselves to look like they're doing something. But then like here in Nevada, you had the governor almost like yelling into the camera, basically saying like this moratorium does not relieve your obligation to pay your rent to your landlord. You still have to pay your rent. We're just not going to let you be evicted, you know, but you still owe that money. It Tell was, me it, Governor Sisolak doesn't look like the mean boss from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> See that oh kind of box-shaped head? Right? Yeah. I, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not trying to pick on him, but he has that vibe. Look, I don't envy the, I mean, he just started his job, like, in this pandemic. Like, I don't envy that. I wouldn't wish that on any newer politician. But, uh, man, you're really, really taking the side of, uh, landlords and big business here in well, I was gonna say, and you know what i if i had to choose between being him or a random person going through it i'm gonna choose being him yeah. i mean the people in the in the communities have it way worse right now so yeah so i mean which is another point by the way a little tangent but seeing all these politicians get the vaccine is is driving me insane like i think it would be solid policy and anyone tell me if you think that you disagree but I think it would be solid policy to mandate by law that no politician who is in a position to, to work on getting the vaccine distributed should be allowed to get the vaccine unless everyone else already had an opportunity. Like they should be the last ones because they're the ones in charge of making sure everyone gets it. So you they know, should feel you know the urgency. I think citizens, I think we should let like five politicians get it and citizens have to vote on which five politicians <laughs> get it before everyone. <laughs> I like it, man. Just Bernie. I'd it give it down. to Bernie, you know, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Bernie. Yeah. And uh, Bernie. I mean, AOC. I might, I'd give it to Bernie and the squad. <laughs> Bernie and the squad. There's your five. I mean, the squad is growing now, so you know that would be That's really true. tough, really tough choice. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm being honest, I would still allow anyone in Congress or whatever to get it if they're at high risk, you know. It, but in the same order of rotation is anybody else right like they're treating themselves like they always do they get a vote on their own salary right they get a vote on all the things that affect their own lives and we have no meaningful say in you know how soon do i get the vaccine you know how and like my kids don't aren't going to daycare because it's not safe right now we have the privilege of being able to be home and and keep our kids at home not everyone does but like why aren't you know we need daycare workers to have it right away we need like so many people in society need this vaccine probably sooner than Congress does who can like probably do 95% of their job in their office, but that's just me. Um, and so anyway, getting back into this <laughs> housing situation here, um, you know, as long as people, I mean, a, a, a nice transition from that would be to point out like houselessness 
is a health issue. I, I will speak from personal experience and, you know, I'll probably not trying to make it like a, some sad sap story here, but I mean, I was homeless for a certain amount of time and I had been evicted and I can honestly say my, my health during that time was worse than it's ever been. And I mean, honestly, when you're just trying to figure out where you're going to sleep and all these sort of things, even when you're just figuring out, am I going to get kicked out of a house? I don't have money to go to the next place, especially, you know, as we'll talk about in this, there's not really rent control laws. There's not really security deposit laws in this country or anything like that. The last thing I'm concerned about is eating healthy, working out, exercising, going to the doctor. Cause obviously most of these people don't have health insurance, which is a whole nother issue going on right now. But, but also to a lot of these communities that are constantly in trouble with this, you know, lower income housing, which the housing is already not good. It's not clean. Right. I mean, that's already, there's been low estimates of $30 billion, 40, $50 billion that needs to go into revitalizing these communities because the, the chemicals, the, you know, pesticides, whatever, whatever, you know, these, these houses are falling apart when those type of things are going on. Yeah. Housing is absolutely healthcare, right? That's something that tenant unions, the DSA, some politicians, I believe Julie Salazar in New York who's a Congresswoman has pointed out that housing is the same as your health. You can't have good health without a roof over your head every night. And that, that's something that I think we do need to kind of keep in mind when we talk about housing, because I think it, it kind of comes off more like an economic issue because we think of housing in the terms of just buying and renting and, and the, the transition and money and all that. But really, it's like it is the most basic thing and not probably even more important than healthcare. There's never been a time in human history where we're just like, oh, it's cool to just sleep outside and like no problem right? Like you might be thinking of like some tribes or whatever. It's like, no, we've always sought shelter. This is something that we need to feel secure. It's a basic human necessity. Let's talk about this a little bit more. I mean, some of the research that's been done on this, I got this from endhomelessness.org. They say people experiencing homelessness age faster than housed people. Research shows that they have physical conditions that mirror those of people who are 15 to 20 years older than them. Like literally as if your body was 15 to 20 years older. Like, I don't know about you guys, my health, I, I, I'm not in great shape or anything. And I know in 20 years, unless I turn my life around, it's going to be, it's not going to be great. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to fast forward my life 20 years, right? Like my health 20 years. And, uh, and just to imagine like a lot of people on the street are significantly older than me. And, and that means that, that that's putting them already like, so actually to give some straight up statistic on a single day, an estimated 200,000, over 200,000 uh, single adults experiencing a homelessness are already over the age of 50. What does that mean in a pandemic in particular is that if we consider people over the age of 65 to be at high risk for experiencing like, you know, death or, or, or some ex, uh, extra uh, suffering from COVID, then if you're 50 and you're ho homelessness and you're experiencing homelessness, then that really does kind of put you in that high risk category because your body is actually mimicking that of someone who would be 15 to 20 years older than you. Um, is is it, it's a huge health issue. I mean, look at the the health effects when you don't even have a bed, right? If you're sleeping on the floor or even sleeping on a couch every night, your your back's going to get fucked up, right? You're going to yeah. like, there's a, a thousand complications that go wrong. You have breathing issues, anything like that. We would be baffled if any of us said that we sleep on the floor every night, right? We'd be like, that's right. not good for you. You got to you gotta do X, Y, and Z. Let's help you out. So imagine the health effects when you don't even have a roof over your head. You're sleeping on, on sidewalks. There's underground cities 
in certain uh, yeah. cities, they call them, you know, mole people, which is a terribly offensive term. Uh, Las Vegas, I know there's plenty of documentaries of the underground cities we have here. And, and that just goes to show you, right? People are willing to live underground just for shelter. Yeah, just think about how, like, the stay-at-home orders were so instrumental in slowing that first wave of coronavirus spread. And, like, if you have nowhere to live, then then where are you supposed to stay at home? Right. Exactly. right? We can't, on the one hand, say stay at home, uh, but by the way, we're going to kick you out because you can't pay the rent. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Uh, that's, that's actually a really great point, Pete. Like, you want people to stay home when people can't afford to have a home, which is yeah. the worst paradox of all time. Yeah, which if we're, if we're turning it to policy and we want to talk about that for a second, like it is important to remember, like if we talk about housing like a, like a health issue, which we should, some of these policy decisions that our government is making really doesn't make a lot of fucking sense, right? So like the moratorium, for instance, and the one here in Nevada is basically saying, we will not evict you if the reason that you would have otherwise been evicted is is non-payment of rent. So if you're short on cash, that will not be a basis to evict you, but we'll still let you be evicted for other reasons. Like if you're a nuisance to your neighbors or if you're, you know, violating other rules, they're called like four cause nuisance evictions. My biggest rebuttal to that is like, why are there certain types of evictions that are allowed and certain aren't if the basic impetus to have these moratoriums right now is because it's a health crisis then there it makes no it doesn't matter why you're being evicted you just can't be evicted it shouldn't there shouldn't be like a you know okay we understand that like it's almost like they're treating it like some moral issue right like so morally we understand that it's not your fault if you can't pay your rent right now so we'll forgive you for that but if you're an asshole we'll still you know and and you're and you're pissing off your landlord we'll still let him evict you or her evict you for that reason that i mean that's you're missing the whole fucking point or one of the whole fucking points is like, I don't care why people, you know, are facing an eviction proceeding. Eviction shouldn't be happening right now, period, because it's a horrible humanitarian issue. um, Putting people out on the street or in a group housing situation in the middle of a fucking pandemic, much less the fact that we should just never be evicting people, period. But that's a whole, we'll we'll get into that. And I mean, and yeah, and, and definitely, I would imagine, or at least really hope the people listening to this understand the moral implications to to throwing people out on the street. But for those libertarians, the the few that actually exist, you know, I'm sure that some of them probably say, well, you know, fair is fair. They didn't pay, kick them out. Let's talk about the economy. When people are kicked out on the street, that's no way to get the economy back bag booming, right? They're not going to be able to spend money anywhere. The kids aren't going to be able to have the education. You think they're going to be doing their fucking schoolwork in the car? No, this is not how reality works. Uh, The parents won't have a place to change interview for jobs. There are so many implications to the economy for just kicking out families. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The problem is here, this is totally unnecessary. We have about at any given time, like 500,000 homeless or houseless people um, I, 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 I'm using that term. I'm kind of pushing this off a little bit, but the term homeless versus house, houseless, both of those are a little bit of an oversimplification. People have started to use the word houseless recently in like organizing and activist communities. And the intention is good. The reason is they want to indicate like, look, home is where the heart is. We don't want to tell people like, we don't think you have a home because you know, you just don't have a house and we don't want to like treat you like there's no place for you. But the reality is only 37% 
are actually unsheltered. Most are do have some kind of sheltered situation meant for human habitation. I'm not talking about tents or a car. I mean, like some kind of it doesn't. It's not necessarily stable, right? It, by definition, it's not stable. Couch hopping, couch hopping, you know. some kind. They might have a house. They might be a squatter, right? So houseless is a little bit kind of misses the mark too. Yeah, <laughs> Decatur here with his squatting background. So, um, and we're going to talk about squatting a little bit too. But like, what I want to say is like, we're not trying to be insensitive by using the word homeless. I just don't think that using the word houseless actually totally captures the issue. In some ways, it confronts capitalism a lot better when you say, no, I'm like, I'm homeless. Like these people are homeless. They do not have the means to have a, a home life, a, a stable you know, home is where the heart is. That's where you go after a long day's whatever. You right. go back to your home. Those right. tent cities can be gone like that. We've seen that locally. We've seen that in obviously in LA, where is is a tragedy what they do to Skid Row. They clean it up all the time. We see them get harassed. That's a big reason why people don't even like going to shelters or tent cities is because like the amount of abuse they take from strangers. You know, people drive by, throw things at them, taunt them. Uh, if you're a woman, uh, you know, physically, sexually abuse them. These, these are real people go through every day. What I like about the phrase houseless is that we're now talking about, um, we are pointing out to the people who make decisions, you know, about like, should we go demolish that tent city? Like, no, I mean, they have made that into their home out of necessity. Sometimes I think that we like, give out all these brownie points for using the right word instead of just actually fucking helping people. And like, we're also like losing some of the nuance of the issue when we're like canceling people like Decatur got canceled on clubhouse <laughs> for describing his own history of homelessness using the word homeless. He called himself that. And people were like, you, yeah. I mean, I was just in the room on the messiest app. Once again, no one downloaded this fucking app. It's, <laughs> damn, it's the fucking worst. You know, I see a room about housing. So I say, yeah, sure. Like what the hell? I think, you know, I have something to chime in. I've, I've been through it and it's all just talking about how ha being houseless is uh, more dignified than homeless because we are assuming that people aren't okay with their situation. And granted, I give you, I'm sure there's a couple people out there who are totally fine uh, out on the street and all that. You don't know if you're going to come home and that's still there. That doesn't happen with a home. Sure. There could be a fire. There could be a robbery, lots of other things, but that that's completely out of the norm. Whereas when you're, when you have nowhere to sleep, Nothing is normal, right? You don't go back to the same spot and just think like, ah, this is it. Another, <laughs> another great successful day of getting free water at Starbucks and stealing ramen from fucking Albertsons. Yeah. I'm ex as I'm explaining these experiences on Clubhouse, everyone, they just ignore the whole story and are just like, and they got mad at me. And then they said that I was being insensitive for saying that other people, I, I don't know. Fuck that yeah. app, man. That's a garbage <laughs> app. The point really, is, this whole listen, episode is fuck Clubhouse. The, the the point is, you know, that the houseless versus homeless. It's it's a fair debate. It's I think it's important, but I do think if we do start using the word houseless, it's still important to criticize how much of this problem is capitalism, and that we shouldn't settle for like this neoliberal idea that you know people have made up in their head that life is life is okay the way it is it's not yeah. one of the issues with the housing crisis is how disproportionately it's felt by people with mental health issues and mental disability did you want to talk about that at all pete um yeah i'll talk about that a little bit um some of the background research i was looking at and of how that interacts with the COVID 19 situation 
Um, of course, people with mental illness who are homeless have all of those same um, risk factors as, as other homeless people, um, not having access to, you know, good nutrition, good health care, um, not having access to a place they can actually, you know, stay at home um, to distance themselves, um, lack of access to education on the virus and the, you know, the methods they're supposed to take, um, lack of ability to even wash their hands, you know, in, in, in reliable ways. Um, but in addition, if you add in mental illness, to, you know, to the equation, you know, you're 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 adding in an element of people not having, you know, the, the kind of rational thinking skills to be able to navigate this situation. Um, you know, if you're homeless in that situation, but you already have, you know, you have mental illness on top of that, um, you might not even understand concepts like social distancing, um, mask use. You know, it's, it's going to be harder for you to get treatment for things like, like coronavirus, because, you know, if, if you have to be admitted to a hospital, you're not just a COVID-19 patient, you're a psych patient, you may be rejecting the treatment, not understanding what's going on. Um, people with mental illness in those senses are especially vulnerable um, to coronavirus because, you know, A, homelessness is rampant among the mentally ill, um, housing and, and other types of um, assistance to people with mental illness are totally lacking and, and inadequate. And when you combine those together, it's, you know, a very unfortunate situation. Um, we recently in our hospital, our psych hospital, um, required patients to wear masks and we try to give them the education they need to be able to do that. And, and you know, a number of them before they're, you know, really stabilized in their treatment can't even, you know, conceptualize that, um, if there's any issues with aggression, our staff have to put themselves at risk to, to, to help manage these people. Um, it's, you know, it's, it could be a pretty messy situation. You know, Decatur mentioned this earlier too. Like you're just like overall health is so um, impacted when you don't have shelter. And, you know, you think about a lot of our unsheltered population, people living on the street, that 37% of people who don't have any kind of stable housing, like they're, 37% of homeless people who don't have shelter um, for human habitation, they're they, they also like disproportionately people suffering from mental illness and mental disability. And there's a lot of research on that too. And where are you supposed to go, right? Like, you know, the, the, for a while, the shelters weren't taking people, you know, or were really limiting, you know, the number of people they can take. But if you have to stay in a shelter, you're going to be around all kinds of other people who've been exposed to who knows what. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people with, you know, people who are homeless already have very adverse health, health risks as a result of that. Simply the stress of, you know, living on the street and, and not having food security and housing and things like that, you know, already suppress your immune system so that you can't fight off infections as well. A lot of them have very chronic illnesses that are underlying it, you know, add in the pandemic situation in which they don't actually have appropriate places to distance themselves and or, or get health care. Um, you know, just think about how vulnerable these people are. This also ties very quickly into how many of these people end up in jail uh, very quickly. A lot of them would prefer to be in jail, which is horrible to say, but true. Um, is that like, rather than being out in the cold street, you know, you do see people uh, that would rather, you know, just have any kind of shelter. And um, in the I great mean, words of 50 Cent off his first album, people get locked up and read books to pass the time. Yeah, exactly. A few other things here. I mean, this is a huge racial justice issue as well. What people don't understand 
is that um, homeownership is a very special privilege that is enjoyed by people who are the best off in society. There's a huge economic barrier to owning a home. You need a lot of money to come up to the table with to even start the homeownership process. White people own homes way more than other folks. Homeownership rate for white folks, according to the census, US, United States Census Bureau, uh, homeownership rate for white folks is three-fourths, where uh, for Black or Latino or Latinx community, it's less than half. And, and then you I know, bet then if that's the case, homeowners probably buy mayonnaise a lot more than the average person too. <laughs> probably love mayonnaise. <laughs> yeah, actually, that'd be an interesting stat to see. Like, if people are buying mayonnaise, do you own a house? You know, and then getting into homelessness and houselessness in particular didn't surprise me, but the numbers and how disparate uh, this is like really blew me away. Indigenous people including Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are the most likely community to be or houseless. Um, if we look at the, and I'm talking about not like by the sheer accounts, but by the, the rate at which their community, like the percentage of their community that uh, experiences homelessness for every 10,000 people, Pacific Islanders are homeless at a rate of 10 times the national average or almost 10 times the national average. Um, Native Americans are six times more likely to be homeless and black people are five times more likely to be homeless than the national average. Of course, white people do a lot better. And so um, this is just like, when we talk about these things, this is again, like in so many of the areas of our, of our lives and so many of these political issues we talk about, you could pretty quickly find some statistics that show how our people of uh, uh, black indigenous and people of color are experiencing it way worse than white people are. And I think that's very intentional is there is so much to gain in a capitalist system by making the people who are experiencing the worst part of the worst excesses of capitalism not look like the people who are in power. So if you're in a position of power, but the people that your policies affect the most don't look like your kids. They look like someone else's kids, totally different color, don't speak with the same dialect. They don't feel like your family to you because you're a racist. Like prick. Steve's new kid. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> no, he, he looks like me, I swear. It is, is, I think that that is a big part of how capitalism and racial injustice tie together is that capitalism gets away with a lot more because the people who experience the worst part of it don't look like the people who are in power. So obviously right now with this pandemic, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, moratoriums going into place. So people aren't being evicted. Obviously, as we've talked about earlier, that's not really necessarily covering everyone. Certain mm -hmm. states are doing, doing some more things. But what are some more like short-term solutions? Well, one thing that is an immediate one that needs to be done because of this pandemic specifically is canceling rent. We need to at least suspend the payments and ban those back payments from, from being paid off because these no one can survive off no, no open society, no UBI, no one's getting paid, right? So we can't expect these people to keep getting paid. So I think a good place to start here is the cancel rent movement that we're seeing pop up in more and more cities across America. We've seen activists on the ground with certain uh, democratic socialist groups are working on some things certain tenant unions, which we'll get into in a second here, are working on some things. There is only one city in all of America that's been successfully able to cancel rent, and that is Ithaca, New York. 
if anyone's familiar with Ithaca, it's a college town, I believe, right, Steve? Yeah, there's That's- Ithaca College there and Cornell University. Cornell, where uh, Andy from The Office went, which is yeah. most notably uh, <laughs> yeah. the alum. The most uh, famous alum. This has been a, a slower movement that's that's kind of get going because we do live in a landlord heavy nation. So a lot of the a lot of the states, I have a stat here, which is kind of crazy. Thirty six states preempt any rent control in in the state. That's a huge setback, right? When we're trying to talk about something progressive as canceling rent and trying to, yeah, know, and rent is like canceling that. rent is the most you know extreme form of rent control, right? No exactly. rent at all by law, and like, and that's and that's what's a little bit tricky about it too is, and that's wild that some states don't even let that happen. I mean, most places aren't going to cancel rent, period. But you know that they right. would even have but, a lot. But of I think it's important it. to 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 swing big at least in and noticing where it could be because you look at a lot of countries in the EU, a lot of Asian countries, a lot of Southern American countries have completely canceled rent throughout this. And, you know, any rent that the landlord would have, you know, or mortgage, you know, mortgage payments have been suspended across right. in, in plenty of countries. And so, yeah, and that, that kind of gets to a, another a growing movement that's happened where some people in the Biden administration have actually shown some sympathy to. Do I think that the Biden administration is going to take care of this? But also, just for the record, no. Let me say that. I don't think he's going to solve it. But, you know, that, there's... <laughs> There's some potential for some sort of thing that's not as drastic as it needs to be, but of a uh, rent debt relief program where up to $15,000, if you're behind the government, will pay. Some uh, are trying to push that onto the Biden administration right now, which would be absolutely huge. That kind of leads me into, you know, the next thing that I kind of want to talk about here for, for real quick is what's some actual just attainable things that people at home can start actually you know theorizing on what to do because obviously you know you're not going to be able to set up a a rent relief program in your basement and if you can (laughs) you have a very large basement with some very great connections yeah and that's incredible and why are you listening to this podcast you're wasting your fucking life right now you can be doing a lot of great stuff but for the people who are just renting at home and life sucks during all this. One of the things that I think this COVID response that's brought out a lot more of are tenant unions, which I really want to get into that I've done some research on that I think is actually really important. So tenant unions, just to kind of give people a breakdown, it's just, you know, a group of people organized via a building, neighborhood, county, city, block, you know, whatever, to fight for issues that help the tenant. It's, you know, it's just, you're using, you obviously have more power as a group than an individual. So if say you don't have any heat, you don't have any AC, depending on what the the laws in your county are or state, if you complain to your landlord, who knows how long it'll get done. I obviously, Steve knows I had a lot of problems with my AC over the past year. Now, if I had a group of people who were all saying, no, you guys keep sending people out. Everyone's AC in this building is weak. It's broken that needs to be addressed. And those are things that we could have more power in numbers with. It's essentially Mm -hmm. just like an HOA for tenants. And I think that's like probably the best way to look at it is, you know, there's the homeowners association, essentially, you know, a tenant union is just a tenants association, which actually some places do call it a tenant association. Some people call it a tenants council. And it's really just trying to, to work for things that can make the tenant's life easier. Landlords abuse power. They raise rent. We talked earlier how 
36 states don't have any, not, not only don't have rent control, but they ban rent control, right? They don't have any, any restrictions on how much your security deposit can be. They don't have any restrictions on how much your late rent fees can be. All these sort of things, tenant unions can really work so, like to, to help build up. So I they think can it's work really as important. like a lobby to the government. They can also work if you have, if you're organizing a tenant union in your building, for example, if you're in an apartment building, if you organize all the tenants or a huge portion of the tenants in that same apartment building, you can then have collective action against a single common landlord that you have. So it could be like, hey, the whole building is withholding rent until you fix this issue. So now we're all in solidarity together. And I'm not telling anyone to withhold rent. That's extremely risky. You, you very well could end up on this street, even if you have laws in place that are supposed to allow you to do that. That's a, that's a, that's a whole different conversation. Um, and if right. you're thinking about doing something like that, you really do need to consult a lawyer. Contact your net local National Lawyers Guild. Um, they, they might be able to put you in contact with the right people. But And, and yeah. if you have a tenant union by you, by the way, look it up because they are all working with, with actual you know, tenant and, and home lawyers and who know the, the, the ins yeah. and outs of that, which is really that important. That's exactly the point. Like now you have collective resources. Like, yeah, you can't go afford a lawyer on your own, but if you have a tenant union and you all kind of like, I don't know if you want to pay fees to it or, or the details of how they all work, you know, if there's like a small you know, membership fee or something, but like, basically you can collect, you can pool resources and, and work on these issues together that alone, you're just, you know, everyone knows what it's like to have a landlord blow them off. But when it's the whole apartment building complaining together about something and like, and, and now actually, you know, it's, it's a very similar theory to labor unions, right? It's like, if I'm one employee and I go to complain to my manager, I might get fired. But if I'm the whole workforce, now the manager really has to worry about, that shit. And so it's, it's a very similar right. theory and it's and it, in a lot of ways, like we're talking about, you know, if we looked at it from like more of like a Marxist perspective, we are talking about like the have than the have nots, you know, this, like this, like the power dynamic and like feudalism, they literally made it like a legal situation where someone has legal power over their serfs. Like you have the landlord and the tenants. Right. And that still is true. We've maintained that power dynamic in multiple areas of our life. Right. It's in, and one of the, you know, at work, obviously you hear socialists talk a lot about, you know, you have bosses and you have workers and, um, but of course, another huge area <clears throat> where everybody relates to is that you have landlords and you have tenants and that's another huge power dynamic. And when you think about what a landlord is, by the way, like, if you just want to get a little more pissed off about this, like a landlord is a person who's able to exploit your financial situation and make money off you. Like literally they're making money off the property you live on in multiple ways. One of which is just like anyone who owns a property knows that you gain value from the property over appreciation, just over the fact that over time it raises value unless there's a, a mortgage crisis like in 2008. But they're also making money off the fact that they don't even have to pay their fucking mortgage. They're taking your rent and paying it. So like they're literally also paying themselves equity into the house and and like they're making so much fucking money off having, off being landlords. Like you, you could literally- that you have no say over. It's just a whole power dynamic. Like it's just such an ex exploitation in its purest form. What are you getting from them? You're paying for the fucking place you're living. It's not like you're like, there's some benevolent person. They're only able to exploit you because you didn't have that upfront cash to put a down payment on a house. That's the only difference between you and a landlord. Doing research on this, going through different tenant unions, seeing the complaints, seeing what's got resolved. The, the main thing that seems to be the, 
the easiest thing that's been taken care of is getting landlords out of the business is, and this happens, there's so many cases, just doing research about this, seriously, the dozens and dozens of cases you hear about this happening is, you know, landlords sexually assaulting their, their tenants and the tenants have no voice until these tenant unions come in and the lawyers say, Hey, that's illegal. And once again, this goes back to, you know, the, the marginalized community, especially our immigrant community that doesn't have the same grasp of understanding their rights and they're afraid and all all these sort of things that, that take place in in public housing situations, uh, public housing. I also just mean, you know, low income housing and and, and things like that, that section eight would qualify for things like that. Yeah. Seriously, guys, the amount of research I did where it's just these tenant unions come in and get rid of a landlord that's sexually harassing so many tenants and these other tenants didn't even know about it until someone had the courage to come out about it. This is a this is like a real problem. And that's just another way that you can be exploited and taken advantage of by a landlord that we don't necessarily consider all the power dynamic that's not just a financial one. Yeah, and like if you need resources trying to organize a tenant union. If you think this is an exciting idea, and I do, I'm like very excited um, to get more involved in this. The Democratic Socialists of America are like making this a a thing. And so you want to contact your local chapter. I want to give a really good shout out. If anyone just wants to understand the basics of tenant unions, this helped me understand a lot and understand how to start building an actual proper tenant union in a very simplistic way. Look up uh, tenants, united podcast it's great they interview different leaders of tenant unions break it down real simple and it really just shows you like these are just average tenants just living life who who have put put this stuff together and that's awesome we'll put a we'll put a link to that in the description most of the problems you're having with your landlord or with your building they're all facing the same one if they have the same landlord you know it's yeah it's the same thing. And you can complain by yourself and that's only going to get so far. It's like Steve said earlier about like, you know, getting, you know, like complaining about your job, right? Like, you know, if you're going to get, uh, you know, if you want to raise, for example, that's an example I heard somewhere was, you know, you want to raise, well, they'll, it's going to tell you to fuck off if you go in there by yourself. If everyone goes on strike and demands a raise, now you actually have some leverage. Right. And, and, and think about it also, like I, I, I kind of remember this from living in an apartment building before I'm in a house now, but um, it, like everyone is always, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys had a different experience, but I was definitely constantly violating the lease provisions. Like I'd have people over more days per the month than I'm supposed to. I'd have, um, you know, things. Bro, I never my... even read that shit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I no, I, you forget yeah. how much of a nerd I am. I actually like part of becoming a lawyer was the experiences I had with landlords that made me hate them so much that I wanted to then like, I, 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 like brought them to small claims court, like multiple times I was successful doing that. And it was such a, like kind of empowering experience. I was like, I should be a lawyer. And I'm going to bring that up again in a second because, uh, because lawyers aren't all they're cracked up to be actually I've learned, but, um, but like going back to the point is that, yeah, I know it pains me to say, but, um, is that we like, if, if you're, if you have a problem, let's say like your heat is not working right or whatever. And you're like, a lot of us have felt nervous to go to management and complain because we know that like, we don't want to get on their radar. 
because like we they we might be violating some rule about like you're not supposed to have like a barbecue on your patio that okay that's a terrible example because you can start a fire don't do that <laughs> but like what i mean is like if you are violating certain rules and you know that you don't want to be on their radar you know especially in a jurisdiction that might uh still weed might be illegal if you if you smoke marijuana and you don't want to be like busted for that or whatever which is know. a big problem by the way in the state of missouri right now that a lot of these landlords are getting around the uh, moratorium there is just going around finding people who house smell like weed and yep. use it as an excuse to kick them out. So. Yeah, 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 right. Which again, makes no sense in a pandemic that you should be kicking people out for that reason. It never makes sense, but especially in a pandemic. But you know, so my point, what I'm getting at here is like, of course, you don't want to be the one person to put yourself on the radar of the landlord. But if you have, if you know, the landlord has a whole apartment building, um, that they're in charge of, then you could uh, collectively make like a group complaint about certain issues, you know, where you might be able to have more power there. But also I think what's really important if people don't realize is that like landlords do have associations that are very powerful lobbies that make sure that they influence exactly word for word what the law says in your state and in your county. And it, tenants need that kind of power too. This is going to get pretty socialist pretty quick. So the really like the two major things I think we need to think about when we're talking about solutions, both short term and long term, is trying to address the how do we make this not stigmatized and who do we put in control of what these communities look like? And the answer uh, to the latter one is what people are now talking about called community controlled housing. And that comes in different forms. You have, you know, like apartment buildings that are run as a cooperative among the residents of that cooperative uh, of the apartment complex. You have this concept called a community land trust, which is a, um, a neighborhood that is, um, or, or an area, uh, or it could, it might not even be a neighborhood. It could be like houses all over the place that is owned and operated by a nonprofit that is actually owned and operated by the residents of it. Now, not all community land trusts are run that way, but the good ones are. And so, uh, Jackman has a really good article on that, that I'll drop. But basically the idea is you want the actual people living like, like anyone who owns a house knows what it feels like to be in control of your neighborhood, right? To have some say in your HOA, to have some say in your own property and how much, how dignifying that is to you as a being, to have some ability to kind of customize your space and take care of it as your own. And like, just because I had enough money to make a down payment on a house doesn't mean I am more valuable as a person, as someone who doesn't have that down payment. They should still be able to have that ability to, you know, have some say in their own housing. And, and that will inevitably create a nicer living space. So it could be low income housing that you live in a community land trust, for example, but the community land trust is run by the community. So you have like, you vote on things together like you would with an HOA. Um, you, a lot of the community land trusts, the way they're designed is the nonprofit technically owns the land that you're on, but you can have equity in, for example, the house that you're in, or you could buy the house itself, but not the land. And so there's like different ways they've structured it. No no two community land trusts are exactly the same, but like there's ways they can structure it where basically it lowers the barrier to be able to get into that community. So you don't need this huge down payment to get in like you would to just straight up buy a house, but you can also be like, have some ownership equity in the home. So you can start to build equity, start to, you know, these like payments you're making towards the house, they're going to be lower, but they're also going to be somewhat going 
going into your pocket. Um, some of it is going to go to the community itself. So you can collectively make your neighborhood look nice. Um, uh, and and yeah. so, you know what I mean? This is and, a and, and just idea. Uh, if, if, if anyone's looking for a great example, uh, probably the most successful in, in America that there's plenty of articles on, if anyone wants to look up the Champlain, uh, Champlain, Vermont's, uh, community land trust, I believe right. is what it's called. That was actually the one in the United States, which, which is, was possible thanks to a mayor in the eighties by the name of Bernie Sanders, who, right. who helped get the seed money for it and hundreds of, of positive cases for that. So if anyone wants to look into that, that's a great example and probably really the only great positive example. I know we had some big wins in Philadelphia as far as land trust in the past couple of years as well. Yeah. But. And so what, we, what is this doing? What is so fundamentally different about this? We're abolishing landlords for as many people as possible. That's the fucking point. We're abolishing landlords. These are ex people who exploit you for no fucking reason. And we're giving you more security in your home. We're making it cheaper to be able to live in a place, you know, to have a nice house that you have some say in control over, to have some say in control over your neighborhood. And like that is so important. And like, so that's like a mini dose of socialism that you could have in your own community. You can organize and help like the community pool money together to start this nonprofit, to buy up some land. Um, you can work with your local government if you want to try to get some funding for this community land trust to have some government subsidy to make it happen. You know, so there's like a bunch of different models on how it goes. And a lot of the community land trusts aren't great. They have become this like charity that is now this like nonprofit company that's like running it like public housing. And they're more right. worried about getting people sheltered, which is great, than they are about giving people a say in their own neighborhood, which is not great. So we need what we we need to be focusing on community controlled housing in this way, which is now you have voting rights on your own neighborhood. You have actual like residence rights in a way where you're not like, you know, just working for some landlord um, and paying some landlord just for the right to exist on a property. So that's what a community land trust does. It's similar. You could also have apartment co-ops that work in the same way um, that, uh, you know, similar concept. So these are great, like, I would call them like a medium term solution. Like that is a permanent solution for a lot of people to get out right. from under the boot of a landlord and have like, to be able to enjoy some like socialized housing. What, yeah. what we need to, what I want to talk about, a little more though. Uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to back up a little bit. So how does that tie into public housing? You could model public housing in a similar way where you have public housing, but it's now community controlled. And um, these are like more short terms, you know, that's like, again, you still have the problem of like, well, you're still othering these communities, you're still making it likely, for example, if a community land trust is subsidized by the government, that's always they could always take that away. And suddenly now this is going to be a neglected community. They're not very profitable because they're not designed to be profitable. They're designed to be a fucking home. And so, and so the idea here is, okay, how do we even move past that? Right? So we, we've talked about, um, we've talked about public housing. We've talked about tenant unions, but what are we building towards? What do we want long-term? How do we stop this problem? Well, the problem is we've turned homes into a commodity, right? That's the problem. We talked about the problem with landlords. We also treat homes like a commodity. Like it's just like a fucking, you know, burger you can go buy. And if you don't have enough money, sorry, you don't get the burger, you know, which again, that's another example of something that should not be a commodity. That's fucking food um, that people need to survive. But, you know, nationalize McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, socialists talk a lot about abolishing private property. And the reason I gave you that like history primer on what is property, the uh, it, what is it to own something 
we don't have a problem with people being able to control their own house. In fact, that's exactly what we want people to have. That's why we want right. community controlled housing. What we do have a problem with is that the property you're living on can be bought and sold by other people. And, and, and we can, and that, that always is the, the housing market is inherently unjust because it's constantly raising the cost of housing. And now we have a situation where like almost half of people are saying that they're struggling to pay their rent. And that's happening because they we're treating housing like a capitalist market instead of a basic human need that we can control collectively as a community. So when we talk about abolish private property, really we're talking about abolish the housing market and abolish landlords. We don't need right. landlords. There, there's no fucking need for that. And we don't need housing to be treated as a commodity. We need shelter. We need a fucking home, you know? And yeah. so what we want to, so, you know, and this just gets into theory. There's, there's a lot of different models that like more socialist countries have looked at on how do we like distribute housing if it's not based on money. Um, and that's a really interesting conversation I want to get into, but I just want to say like, you know, the, 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 basically the point is, is we want to start slowly building a society where people start to see more and more what it would look like to have a community without landlords, you know, like a community right. controlled housing. And like, if we had that, what would it look like and how much better would it be? Well, and so, and, and, so and what Steve, do you think? I think you yeah. put it so, so well, when you were just saying like, listen, at the end of the day, this is, this is shelter we're talking about, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I think some some of us saw the headlines that water is going to be on the market now, right? Like they're, like yeah. it, it's now getting becoming on the on the stock exchange and all that shit. And rightly, plenty of people were horrified. Like, what the fuck? We're yeah. gonna like this is water. Like this is the, a basic thing. Think about that in the same context of housing, because we have a market mm -hmm. for shelter. Right essentially. And that is just as insane to think about. You need water, you need food, and you need shelter. The fact that we are letting these people who just had better breaks run, if you get to have shelter, when you get to have shelter, oh, there's a deadly virus outside. It's too bad because, you know, you got to Because you were smoking money. pot. Yeah. Because you, because you smoked pot. Yeah. Because your credit, whatever. That, that shouldn't be allowed. We need to think of a, of a world where our basic necessities are are met and then we can talk about you know all these other markets whatever you want to do with them personally i think that we need to get rid of pretty much all the markets but that's that's for another day the fact is you can yeah and that's something things. socialists debate deb themselves is like should we keep right. some markets like should we have a market for the xbox you know like that's a luxury who the fuck cares you know fine have a market for that don't have a market for that but housing no socialists are debating that Right. We need to take that right. shit off the market. Right. Like, well, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know. Democratic socialist is a mixed bag. There's a, a lot of people who call themselves that, but like, as far as really long-term solutions for like, what do we want society to look like down the road? That's not something that should be up for debate is like, should right. we be treating housing as something that we can, but yes, buying and selling doesn't sound like an evil thing to do, but when you know how that affects people's lives and when, and that that's perpetually making things more expensive, you know, that then, you know, that's really problematic. So, you know, we do have like, you know, fixes to the problem, like short-term band-aids we can put on it, like rent control, we can put in rent control control, which will prevent how much you can sell a house for as well, you know, which people bitch about because they're like, oh, now I can't, oh, I need to be able to make as much money off this house as possible because, because I don't know, because I want to be rich. And it's like, well, you know, but they also need a house. So, they, you know, you have rent control is, is a very, um, very successful solution 
to, but, but it's very short term and it's only a bandaid because if you look at, for example, New York, New York used to have really widespread rent control. And the reason rent control is no longer like a huge thing in New York anymore is not because it was a failure, but because landlords were successful at lobbying the government to come up with more exceptions and, and find ways around rent control. So now the number of homes that are um, under uh, rent control regulation are, is so much less than it used to be, not because it wasn't successful at keeping people in their houses. It was very good at that. It was just very, it was just, we have very powerful capitalists who have every need, like we were talking about, like with public housing, like with healthcare, like with any um, solution that's designed to be for the people, you're all, unless it's a universal program, there's always going to be, you know, capitalists who are trying to take it away because it doesn't make them money. And so that we, so how do we get past that all together is eventually creating a society where we, you know, don't have landlords, don't have a uh, community, you know, don't have um, uh, a housing market. And instead we find more creative ways, um, which I can get into uh, in a little bit. I, I mean, I, I'm sure you're curious. So there is a lot of conversation. There's been other ways that other societies have figured out how to distribute housing. And that's just a matter of public policy, right? Like right now we live in a society that was built under capitalism. So we have all sorts of ranges of houses. We have tiny ass little, you know, studio apartments all the way to, um, you know, mega mansions and who gets to live in what, if it's not based on money. And that I think right. is a policy decision we can talk about, or like I've heard people talk about is like, like we can basically structure it as a lottery system or a weighted lottery system where like we give preference to certain people who have certain disabilities that need certain type of housing, but that we can also take into account, like, what kind of job do you have? Are you, do you have a more shitty job than other people where now we can incentivize people to take shittier jobs because they get a preference in the housing uh, lottery or whatever, you know, there's just right. like different models that different societies have done. And we, it could also be a first come first serve thing where we also do have preferences for, again, where we build in certain special uh, uh, interests uh, to it. So it's like something that we can continue to perfect over time, but there are much more equitable ways to determine who gets what house uh, than, you know, and I'm not so worried about like what happened to Jeff Bezos's house. I don't know, blow it up. But if you don't want to like, let's have like this awesome lottery where everyone gets to like, you know, maybe you have a chance to live in it for a year. I don't care. Like, I'm honestly more worried about like, what do we do about like regular housing market? And, well, and another, Bezos sorry, go going to be living on the moon soon anyways. So, yeah. And so what I kind of want to conclude on is like, what's so inequitable about this? <laughs> I'm sorry. I brushed over what you just said that. <laughs> that Honestly, is, that that's joke so would offensive. have killed on clubhouse. God damn it. <laughs> that, that, that actually is really astute though, because like we're talking about these huge humanitarian crises, crises we're talking about, but he has famously infamously said that the only way he can see to spend his money is on space exploration, which makes him such an asshole because he has so much money. And you know, some expert I'm looking for the stat here said that they think that they can like solve the current like housing crisis we have right now the, with $100 billion, which is so much less than like, like we, that people like Jeff Bezos, like you really don't know how to spend your money. Like there's a fucking great way is like yeah. literally save that like hundreds of thousands of lives by addressing this housing crisis. And so one of the really immediate solutions we could do to overnight solve the housing crisis is we could take just half a million of those 14 million and put 
people in we could give them all their own fucking house overnight by using the government's power of eminent domain like so for example i want to give a shout out to this uh show called philosophy tube it's a great youtube channel that made this point which is that um it's a leftist youtube channel it's really good but he said if you can use your power of eminent domain to go into a neighborhood and tell everyone, sorry, you're all kicked out. Um, if the government's going to come in, t seize all this property to put in a highway or put in a shopping mall, we sure as shit can do the same thing to say, hey, we're not even going to demolish this home these homes. We're just going to come in and use the government power to make sure someone's actually living in it. That we could right. do. And we could immediately overnight solve the homing housing crisis with the 14 million vacant homes we currently have in the United States. So Dude, this, ex this exact issue is like, main criticism of capitalism that it creates all this false scarcity when you have plenty of housing available for people you have plenty of food plenty of water if we're able to distribute it appropriately like but but you know capitalism moves money around in such a way that people who have who who have needs don't can't get those needs met yep it's it, it's it's utterly ridiculous yeah and yeah. the more the more trading that goes one minute even you know, some of the people at the top start to get cut out. And what it does is just, it just stretches it more and more of this like pyramid of who's at the top and who's at the bottom. And there is just more and more room in between every day. Yeah. And so like, that's the best rebuttal to you. Like Nikki Haley was just on Twitter talking about like how socialism just become mainstream. And like, that's such an unjust system. Yeah. And it's like, let's <laughs> so take a step back and look, yeah, it's such garbage. Like socialism is trying to address the problem that Peter just pointed out, which is like, the problem with capitalism isn't that like, of course, capitalism can create a lot of wealth. That's a really huge advantage of capitalism. The problem with capitalism is this is an unjust way to distribute that wealth. And the more you allow it to run unregulated, the more the wealth will just continue. Like it is absolutely not profitable to fill those 14 million homes um, to according to the people who own those homes, right? They have a reason for not filling those houses. Right. And so, um, I mean, a lot of the reason is a lot of people just can't fucking afford to pay the exorbitant rent they're trying to charge, but you know, I'm digressing, but the point is, is like the problem with capitalism is an extremely unjust way to distribute all the wealth we have, especially here in the United States, the most wealthy nation on earth. Um, and we can't even give people homes and the, the solutions are right in front of our face. We don't need to build any more houses. We don't need to do shit. We just need to exercise eminent domain and make sure those houses are occupied. We could have a registry of vacant homes. If you have a home that's unoccupied for more than three months and you haven't filed some kind of waiver with the government, this is an example I'm just throwing out there of like a policy solution. And you haven't filed a waiver with the government to explain why it's vacant in it for a good explanation that we all agree on democratically is a reason you should be allowed to keep it vacant. Like, oh, you know, my mom's going to retire in a year and I'm trying to keep that for her to be able to live in or, oh, I'm going to remodel it. And so it can't be vacant for the next five months, whatever. If you have an exempt reason to keep it vacant, fine. But if it's like, no, I'm just like sitting on it because I'm trying to build wealth um, while the housing market appreciates, I don't care that there's people experiencing homelessness um, or houselessness. You probably don't think of yourself as, as an asshole. You think of it as a great investment. But and 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 I don't mean any specific person listening is an asshole if you own a vacant house. I'm just saying. Well, that, like, I think. Well, no, it's like the people are assholes unless they listen to the podcast. Then, yeah, if you listen to the podcast, you're not, and you're now. And you're even less of an asshole if you donate to our Patreon. Go on. <laughs> Actually, you're totally absolved if you donate to our Patreon. Um, but you know, the point is, is that like. They're trying to make us think that like socialism would somehow be less just than this current system. Give me a fucking break. Like the, there are other countries, I think you pointed out to cater to me in a conversation earlier. There are other countries 
that have less homelessness in their entire country than we have right here in Clark County, Nevada. In Las yep. Vegas, we have more houselessness and homelessness than in fucking Japan. Yeah, yeah, in Japan. And listen, plenty of counties have more in America have more homeless and houseless communities than they do in Bosnia that went through a terrible war in the 90s that had genocide going on. That is, it's pathetic. It's a failure of capitalism on a whole new level. And it really does mix with, you know, America. When we do things, we go way too hard. We went even harder than we should have gone. Capitalism, and I'm not. I don't even think capitalism is a good idea. And we already went way past what would have been like even like remotely acceptable in another capitalist society. So, yeah. like wrapping wrapping this up, I, I just want to say, you know, like Biden constantly during the debates, you know, for and you know has said this in old debates when he ran for president too. Like the 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 best part to keep America safe and to keep everyone good is to have your family dinners at the table. Well, you can't do that without a roof over your head and you're not going to be able to do that if you're not making enough money. If all that's going to rent or if you're getting kicked out, you're not going to have those family dinners and by his own accords, society's going to crumble. And my final thoughts on this, I think that was really well said, Decatur. My final thoughts on this are go watch It's a Wonderful Life it's actually a really incredible uh, indictment of capitalism. I took a film class in high school and I, w- and I didn't expect us to talk about this movie or watch it. I certainly didn't expect the teacher's take on it, which is that It's a Wonderful Life is actually a indictment of capitalism. And the, the story is, in one way you can spin it, is good capitalism versus bad capitalism. But actually, I, I have a kind of different take, which is that like the whole movie is about this like evil banker that it's trying to basically, you know, buy out the whole fucking community so he can provide shit housing to people at exorbitant costs. And the the protagonist of the story is a guy who's trying to provide affordable homes to people. And I think that it's like a really fucking cool story. But when you see like, how did that dynamic play out? I think it was actually like, somewhat realistic there was like an unrealistic part where like the only reason that the guy trying to go for like better community housing um was losing was because he lost like his uncle lost all that cash right was the plot right. point of the movie i think it would have been more realistic if they just made it more realistic which is that um he was losing because he can't compete with the banker in the economic you know sphere that that is a real thing like this happens people trying to make affordable housing can't compete they don't have the economic and political power to like you know fight off developers who are trying to come into areas and buy things out and convince the government to exercise eminent domain in areas for their own businesses and shit and all that kind of stuff and you see this is a constant battle between like smaller landowners and larger landowners who are trying to like battle over uh, certain areas that a developer is trying to develop and and then you know you have all these uh problems with uh gentrification as well and so um where you know that's a whole other podcast episode um which we should do but the really cool thing about it to one of a life is what i did like about it is how did jimmy stewart solve the problem at the end like when he was finally gonna lose to the banker and and capitalism was gonna win what happened the community got together and literally pooled their fucking money and they decided to help him out and and keep the like affordable community housing going and like it's actually a beautiful story and really relevant to right now is like you don't have we can't beat the big rich bankers on an individual one-on-one fight we can collectively as a community come together and solve the problem so with that i want to take us out with a uh clip from that movie 
um, to warm your hearts. What is that, Gettys? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute. Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I... You're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. And, uh, and with that, we thank everyone for listening to this episode. Um, and we'll see you next time. Hey, and everyone, you know, uh, we're back. We're back in full effect. 2021 is going to be the year that you guys are going to get from us podcast 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 and we'd really appreciate <laughs> if you can donate to our patreon uh patreon.com backslash super politics show and the link is below this podcast link whether you're listening i don't know how you're listening it'll be in the Who description cares? yeah <laughs> it'll be in the description <laughs> and we love you guys and that's really all i have to say uh guys it's been great getting back together uh Dr. Peter Pants, thank you for keeping us on track. This might have gone like four hours if you weren't here. So, um, and I appreciate it came that. Close. And my girlfriend sleeping <laughs> appreciates that because otherwise she'd be up all night hearing me yell uh, about what a tenant union is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm cold in my garage. So it, that could have been terrible to sit in here forever. I'm like sitting here, like it's the only quiet place. I have two kids sleeping and my wife's sleeping. So I came into my garage and I'm recording it in here and I'm just have a coat on and it's freezing. So let's wrap this up and get the hell out of here. Thanks for listening, everybody. All this right, is guys, we love super you. politics. Love you. stop this.